Good morning, everyone. Uh, turning your Bibles to First Peter, uh, as you probably remember, when we started the book of Mark, that we called this the memoirs of Peter, because Mark as a gospel was influenced by the Apostle Peter. And now we come to the second book that is not only influenced, but, but written by Peter himself, and that's the first letter of Peter. So first Peter, and today, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 1 to verse 12 in that first chapter. You know, in an online article titled, Why We Need to Re-Emphasize America's Founding Principles in Civics Education. It's quite a long title, but the reason why we need to emphasize that um, is what Catherine Gorka actually writes about uh, in, uh, in the Heritage Foundation. She says that as a nation, we have a serious problem with civics education and history. And not only are there widespread efforts to undermine the country's founding principles, but the prevalence of civics and history as subjects in schools has declined. She goes on to say multiple surveys show a negative trend in civic literacy. Uh, fewer Americans think that our nation is the best place of hope, uh, opportunity, and community. Uh, that loss of confidence, she says, threatens the sanctity of the American ideal and its validity and relevance to our self-governing republic. Uh, the article goes on to inform the readers that students, quote, do not have a deep understanding of what is right, uh, what is true and good and beautiful about America. Now, part of the challenge, she admits, is that America's history is not all of that not all right and true and good and beautiful all the time. Uh, slavery, she says, racism, racial segregation, uh, which are major blemishes in our history and are far from the only ones. But, she says, the promises of liberty and equality are all at the heart of our nation. We've not always lived up to those promises. Nonetheless, she says, those promises found in the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence are what General George Washington and others fought for, and Americans throughout the last more than 200 years have continued to fight for over the decades and centuries. Now, how do we restore the knowledge and understanding of America's founding principles and values? Her answer, civics education. Civics education. What she means by that is, she says, civics can equip young people, indeed all Americans, to say we share in those promises and we will not give up on them. But, she says, we need to go beyond that and teach the next generation and give them a deeper understanding of why our founders risked their lives for the right to govern themselves. Now, you probably are wondering why I read that long of an article, but it'll make sense as we go through this lesson. You see, what is true for our nation what is true for us as Americans is true for us as believers in a spiritual sense. Because when a persecution or suffering comes in our life, when there are trials, we are tempted to move from our roots, from our foundations. But it is precisely in those moments that we need to be more aware of our roots and more aware of our foundation. We can let persecution and suffering either help us to grow or move us towards grumbling. It'll either help us to grow, or it'll make us more grumbling in nature. And that is why Peter wrote this letter. Now this is our first uh, session, our first teaching session in First Peter, so we need to get some background about the letter itself. Well, here's a quick overview of First Peter. Um, Firstly, we begin by looking at the author himself, Peter, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ, he says in that first verse itself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember how Paul opens his letter, Peter, on the other hand, does not invoke you know, the will of God or the call of God, both of which are true in the life of Peter, but he simply states his identity as the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, in other words, a messenger. Uh, uh, he speaks on behalf of Christ. He is appointed by Jesus Christ. You know, uh, about Peter it is said in one of the old New King James Version or the King James Version, 
Having nothing to say, Peter said. Uh, Peter is that kind of an individual. Uh, he's one of the twelve uh, apostles. In fact, one of the three closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and we would not be wrong in calling Peter as the leader of the pack. You see that throughout the book of Acts, as he's one of the first ones to get up and, and speak. Now, on what basis can we call him the leader? Well, let me just quickly walk through some references in the Gospels to Peter. In Mark chapter 1, we are told that when our Lord was resting and he went away to pray, it was Peter who is mentioned who went along with others looking for where our Lord was. In Luke chapter 5, it was Peter whose boat our Lord uses to teach. And on one such occasion, he told Peter to put his nets on one side of the, uh, the boat and they caught a massive catch of fish. That was Peter's boat. Uh, Peter is also one of them who went out with the many as a part of the outreach ministry in Mar Matthew chapter 10. Uh, in Matthew 14, Peter uh, was the only disciple who stepped out of the boat during a raging storm and walked on the water with our Lord. Only disciple to do that. Uh, Pete, uh, John chapter 6 tells us that it was Peter who said to our Lord, uh, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That was Peter. Uh, Peter also was one of the three disciples, remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration to witness the, the full majesty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in Matthew 18, it was Peter's question on forgiveness which prompted our Lord to reveal the heart of God on forgiveness. But it was also Peter who denied our Lord. It was also Peter who was convicted and then he repented. It was Peter who was restored. It was Peter who ran away from our Lord when he was captured. And then he's not one of those that is mentioned at the cross, but he's also one of those who ran again to the tomb after being told that the tomb was empty. Not only that, Peter is also one of those who received a personal visitation from the Lord after he was raised from the dead. And also it was Peter who was publicly restored by our Lord and charged to care for his flock in John 21. Uh, Peter is an important figure. He is a leader of the early apostles. The only apostles, by the way, that were there. It was Peter, again, who is writing uh, this letter. Peter also, as we learned from the book of Mark, was the one who influenced the gospel of Mark. That's why we call it the memoirs of Peter. Uh, what is the aim of this particular letter? Well, this is the theme or the aim, standing firm through suffering, or stand firm through suffering. The theme uh, that is stand firm through suffering is woven through the letter, and we will get a preview of that in our text today. But the theme is more clearly stated in chapter 5, verse 12. You don't have to turn there, but there Peter writes <coughs> through Silvanus, uh, probably the individual Peter used to pen this letter, probably he was an editor. Uh, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. All that I've written is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Peter is encouraging us and his first readers to stand firm through suffering. This letter then is written with an intention to encourage believers who have, who are, or who will be facing persecution and suffering because of their Christian witness. Now the climate in our nation today, I'm not referring to the climate crises, quote unquote, uh, but the increasing hostility to the truth uh, and the gospel uh, makes this letter extremely relevant and applicable to us. It's important and it's relevant and it's applicable. That then is the aim or the theme. Who is the audience? Who is he writing to? Now for a long time because of the word scattered in verse 1, it was assumed that Peter was writing to Jewish believers uh, because the word scattered is the Greek word diaspora uh, and who the Jews who were scattered were considered a part of the diaspora. But in chapter 4, if you were to turn just one page, chapter 4 verse 3, 
Peter says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Uh, some of these things are not associated with Jewish believers, and therefore many scholars believe that Peter then was writing to Gentile believers. He has been used by the Lord to share the gospel with Gentiles before. If you remember Acts chapter 10 and verse 11, uh, Peter was the first to share the gospel with the Roman centurion, uh, Cornelius. Um, and in other places, Peter is used as well. Now, those chosen aliens, we know, are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. Uh, where, what are some of the locations that Peter mentions? In verse 1, he says, uh, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, those, all of those locations are what is considered as modern-day Turkey. Now, how does he uh, arrange his uh, letter? How, what is the outline of this particular letter? It's very simple. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, and then till chapter 2, verse 12, Peter is going to focus on the salvation of the believer. Then, secondly, he focuses on the submission of the believer, chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 12. And then finally, uh, he comes to the main theme of his letter, which is suffering of the believer, chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 14. Now, there's a logical progression here. You know, Peter is helping us to suffer well. He's preparing us to suffer well. Anyone here going through suffering, gone through suffering? Peter tells us how we can do that in the third section of this letter. But you see, to suffer well, the overall inclination of our heart, of the believer, must be one of submission. As citizens to government, servants to masters, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, Christians to one another, uh, that's the submission that he is talking about. But how can one have such an inclination of the heart when it comes from a right or a proper understanding of their salvation? He tells us in the first section that we have been born again to a living hope, verse 3. And because we've been born again to a living hope, we are to imitate the Holy One who has called us to this life and to himself. That, in essence, is what this letter is about overall. Now, with that background, we are now ready to look at the text for today. Uh, what are things that we need to remind ourselves of as we go through suffering or anticipate going through sufferings? What are some things that we do need to remind ourselves? What is it that the article that I mentioned earlier on, going back to roots, our, our foundations? We need to remind ourselves of the greatness and the grandness of our salvation. When we go through suffering, when we go through trials, we need to remind ourselves of the greatness of our salvation. And so I've titled our lesson for today, So Great a Salvation. So Great a Salvation. Now, why is our salvation great? Peter, here in this uh, section that we have, the first 12 verses, gives us four reasons. The first reason, he says, that our salvation is grace, great is because we have a new identity that results in obedience to Jesus Christ. We have a new identity that results in obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, Peter begins with quite an elaborate opening greeting. But in the greeting itself, he lays all his cards out on the table. Now, there are at least four things he mentions regarding our identity in these first two verses. Uh, first of all, he writes, we reside as aliens. Now, in NASB, uh, the word aliens is separated from the word chosen. You'll see it says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout the, the regions there who are chosen, he says. Uh, but in the original, they are together. And so the phrase is chosen aliens or elect exiles is the other phrase that is used. Now, this is a temporary resident in a foreign land. Our identity 
as believers, if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Christ, your identity is not that you're citizens of this world or even of this nation. Paul tells us in this letter to the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. That is our true home. And because that is our true home, when we are here on earth, we are aliens. We are pilgrims. Another phrase that captures well our identity. We are sojourners. Now remembering this identity will help us not to get attached too much to the things of this world. Everything related to this world is temporary and will one day be destroyed with fire. Peter has something to say about that in his second letter. But everything in this world is temporary. What else does he mention about our identity? Not only are we chosen aliens, but he says that happens according to the foreknowledge of God. That's another side of our identity. It is that God chose us according to our foreknowledge. Now, to have foreknowledge is not just to know in advance or not just to have knowledge about someone. Uh, God's foreknowledge is actually an aspect of his omniscience. Uh, it reveals to us that he is a God who knows our past, knows our present, knows our future, and knows all the permutations and combinations of our life. He's an omniscient God. Also, God's choosing is not random or uninformed. Uh, God chooses us. We are the chosen. Uh, that is what theologians call the doctrine of election. Now, if you're new to our church, if you're new to the Christian faith, uh, perhaps this, is, this may be the first time you're hearing this word. I'd be happy to talk to you after, uh, point you to some scriptures. But what is election? Uh, here's a quick definition of that. It is God's eternal, sovereign, and deliberate choice of men and women for salvation to be his adopted children and it is not on the basis of any merit or obedience on their part. Let me repeat that. It is God's eternal, sovereign and deliberate choice of men and women for salvation to be his adopted children and it is not on the basis of any merit or obedience on their part. It's God's choice. And because it's God's choice, we do not need to fear that we will ever lose that status with God. That is your identity and mine. According to the foreknowledge of God. Thirdly, he says, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You see, it is the Holy Spirit that carries out the work of consecrating or separating us. That's what the word sanctify means. It is to separate. Uh, Peter is reminding us that our choosing, our election, is not just to impact our final destination, which is an eternity with God. It also has to do with how we live here on earth. Election, in that sense, not only touches heaven, but it also touches earth. Now that work of sanctification, of separating, which is what sanctifying is, is done, he says, by the Holy Spirit. And if you're a child of God, if you're born again, that is your identity. Fourthly and finally, he says, this is to, to result in obedience to Jesus Christ. Our obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is a proof, it is an evidence of our salvation. Uh, this is a desire that God places in us to obey his living and written word. Our identity is that we are obeyers or we obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that would have been sufficient. But Peter adds another phrase here. And he says, be sprinkled with his blood. Now why would he add that to his introduction? I mean, it's already heavy introduction. This is all a way of saying hello, by the way. <laughs> it's already heavy and he adds, be sprinkled with his blood. Now why would he add that? You see, Peter wants to begin his letter with a very solid and robust statement of what it means to be chosen by God. And so he lays it all out there. We are aliens, we are sojourners, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. But you see, we won't obey Jesus Christ perfectly. 
and therefore he adds sprinkled with his blood. Now, there were three times in the life of the Israelites when blood was sprinkled on them. Um, here are those three times. First, at the establishment of the Old Covenant, mentioned in Exodus 24. Secondly, at the ordination of Aaron and his sons in Exodus 29. And thirdly, at the purification ceremony of a cleansed leper, mentioned in Leviticus 14. Now, those were the instances wherein the blood was sprinkled on them. When the covenant was signed, when someone was set apart for ministry, or ordained for the duty of priest and then for purification. So here's what Peter means when he writes this. Just as the sprinkling of blood inaugurated the old covenant, the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ inaugurated the new covenant. Just as it set apart the priest for the duty of the priest, of ministry to God, the blood of Christ sets you and me apart as a royal priest. Peter has something to say about that in the second chapter, verse 9. And just as, thirdly, as blood was sprinkled when a leper was cleansed and, and his or her leprosy suggesting, cleansed of the leprosy suggesting an ongoing cleansing or purification in the life of a believer, the blood of Christ is sprinkled on us to purify us and to cleanse us when we are here on this earth. What a powerful way of expressing what it means to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now we have the choosing by God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the ability given by God Himself to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is our identity. And to individuals with such an identity, Peter says, may grace and peace, at the end of verse 2, be yours in the fullest measures. It's like saying to you all, greetings but with more depth and significance to it. He puts together two words uh, that actually def uh, are, are the definition of two different cultures. You see, grace is the Greek word charis. So, grace itself as a word comes to us from Latin, but the word here is the word charis or favor. And my prayer for you, he says, is that you may, uh, may the best that is available from God, his grace and peace, which is a Jewish term, shalom, May grace and his peace be yours in its fullest measure. You know, from uh, 2009 to 2019, I was what they call as a permanent resident, a green card holder. Uh, that is, I was a resident alien in this nation. Now, in those 10 years that I lived here, my heart and my commitment and my allegiance and longing was to the country of my birth, the country of which I was a citizen of. In 2020, I became a citizen of this great nation. I received a new identity. For most of you, probably you are already citizens of this nation. But you know, at the end of the day, in God's eyes and as his children, we are all aliens and sojourners in this world. You are chosen exiles, elect exiles, chosen aliens in this world. So when we suffer, we are to remember this identity of ours. We are chosen aliens. This is not our home. New identity. Secondly, a new beginning that gives us a living hope. Verse 3 to verse 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And secondly, he says, a new beginning that gives us a living hope. As he begins to get ready to think and reflect more on our great salvation, he just bursts with praise and worship to this great God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, perhaps Peter has heard this. Remember in John chapter 5, uh, when the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, uh, it says, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. 
Uh, Peter pro probably was the audience there. He heard that Jesus was claiming God as his own father. He picks up that phrase, mentions it here, telling us that Jesus Christ is, is the second person of the Trinity. He is divine. We have a new identity. We have a new beginning. But how did this beginning really begin here on earth? It was God's great mercy, he says, that caused us to be born again. The cause was God's mercy. Uh, what is mercy? It is to withhold from us what we do deserve. And what do we deserve? See, we deserve God's wrath and judgment. But what did we get instead? We received His mercy. We received His mercy. And because we received that mercy, we were born again. How important is mercy? Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he says, No other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, he says, justice condemns us, holiness frowns upon us, power crushes us, truth confirms the threatening of the law, and wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of our God that all our hopes begin. A wonderful understanding of the role mercy plays. Without mercy, no other attribute of God would have helped us. In verse 23 of the same chapter, he tells us how that process took place. Go to verse 23. He says, we were born again. Again, the same word that he uses in verse 3. We were born again through the living and enduring word of God. And what is that? It's the scriptures, isn't it? It is the scriptures. It's the word of God. But within the word of God, he zones in on the gospel. Notice at the end of verse 25. He says, the, this word he says at the end of uh, that verse, verse 25, was preached to you. This is the word that was preached to you. It is the good news of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the cause was God's mercy. The means was the gospel. And the effect was that we were born again. Now, there is no different categories of Christians in that sense. Uh, there is no, hey, are you the born again kind of a believer and then the rest of the Christians? No, there's only one kind of a Christian and that is one who is born again by the mercy of God. Now if you haven't experienced what Peter is talking about here, new birth, you haven't experienced what it means to be a Christian. That is the only kind of a Christian that is there. Now what did all of this result in? Notice, in verse 3, at the end, it says, born again to a living hope. What a rich language that is. You see, when a new baby is born, like we have one here, there is new life. There is new hopes that come with it. But with all things physical, there are limitations on there. Uh, but that's not the case when God causes us to be born again. Uh, when there is a new birth in the kingdom of God, there is new life. And this hope that we have is a living hope that follows it, not a dead hope. Now on what basis can he say that it is a living hope? What is at the end of verse 3? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. On the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He conquered death. Uh, Peter had witnessed the life, the sufferings, the teachings, the murder, and the resurrection of Jesus. Peter was an eyewitness, he says, to his majesty. You see, on that Friday, Jesus was dead, and he was buried in a tomb, but on Sunday, Jesus was alive. And because that is true, the hope that we who have placed our trust in him is a living hope. Now, what is this hope? What is this desire, this longing for? Well, if you are a part of a family, you know, generally speaking, I'm not guaranteeing anything, but generally speaking, we receive an inheritance, right? You receive an inheritance. And so similarly, being a part of the family of God also comes with an inheritance. Uh, Peter does not mention what that inheritance here is. He gives us some qualities, but as we look at the word inheritance, we see that it could refer to heaven, it could refer to eternal life with God. 
And to take it even a notch further, it could refer to God himself. Uh, David, in Psalm 16, verse 6, he says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance, my cup. And compared to our earthly inheritance, then Peter goes on to mention at least four qualities of this inheritance that we have. What is those four qualities? Notice verse 4. He says, first of all, it is imperishable. It's not subject to decay or corruption. It'll never rot. Our earthly inheritance, whatever that is, is in the process of decaying or rusting or falling apart. Some of us have been through that process where it's been a struggle as we looked at what our inheritance was and just the struggle with siblings and all of that that comes with our temporary perishable inheritance. Ah, but our inheritance as believers is imperishable. It's undefiled. It is untainted, that is untouched or uh, unmarred or uncontaminated. It's unblemished. Our earthly inheritance, on the other hand, is imperfect. It's flawed and it's defiled. Also, he says in verse 4, it will not fade away. It's unfading. You see, what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ is enduring possession. Uh, this is something that never depreciates in value. Um, living on this earth, it's certainly hard for us to imagine something that is unfading. Hard for us to imagine something that never depreciates. Minister and I were fairly new to this country. We were both working at that time. We were living here for a couple of years. And I had a 1996, 1996 Toyota Camry, beige in color. And um, uh, we found out that one of our relatives really needed it more than we did. And so we decided to give it to, to them. And we decided to buy a brand new 2007 Honda Pilot, black. A beautiful looking car. Uh, from the local Honda dealership. Not a plug for Honda, by the way. I'm just sharing my experience here. <laughs> and a week later, as I was reading articles about the car, uh, I found out that my brand new black Honda Pilot 2007 was about $5,000 less in value than I first bought it just a week back. It depreciated. Needless to say, I was disappointed. <laughs> but you know, that is true. And will always be true of our inheritance on this earth. Our inheritance is not of this world as believers. Its, its glorious intensity will never diminish. Un imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And then finally he says, reserved in heaven for us. Our true inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It's not earthly. It's not temporary. It's not something that others can steal from or take away from. It cannot be messed around with because it's not on this earth. And in some measure, God actually gives us some of that, some aspect of that even right now while we're here on this earth. And not only that, we are possessors of this inheritance. We are kept by God himself. Notice verse 5. We are protected by the power of God. The promise of the inheritance is certain. He himself, that is God himself, preserves and keeps us. It is through faith, uh, ours through faith, and one day, he says, everything will be healed, it will be made new, it will be whole. A new beginning that gives us a living hope. You know, our beginning actually operates primarily in the area of our hopes, our desires. Our being born again fills in us new hopes and new desires. When you become a believer, your desires and hopes change. We are ultimately hope-based creatures in that sense. We operate based on our hopes. And so it's vitally important for us to understand what we hope for. Uh, the difference uh, between earthly hope and living hope is, is this. Now imagine an employer hires two workers. And to the one he says separately from the other worker, at the end of the day, I'm going to give you $50 for your work. And then he hires another worker, and to him he says, to you, I'm going to give you $50,000 at the end of the day's work. Now imagine they begin working, 
They begin work and somewhere around noon, they both take a break in the lunchroom and one says to the other, what a tedious and a challenging work this is. So not worth it. But the other guy says, what challenge? It's exciting. It's interesting. You see, the difference is because of the hope that they have of what they will receive at the end of the day. One hopes to receive $50 and the other $50,000. Now, if that is true of an earthly hope, which is just mere wishful thinking compared to biblical understanding of hope, and if that is true of earthly hope, can you imagine what it is like when it comes to living hope? Truth be told, we can't really imagine because Peter has used four words here to describe what that is and he's barely scratched the surface of what living hope is. So, First of all, understanding this new identity. And secondly, the new beginning that gives us the foundation, the basis to have. Thirdly, a new attitude that highlights genuine faith. Verse 6 to verse 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Because we are protected by the power of God, verse 5, it gives us the confidence, the basis to rejoice. What is this new attitude? It's joy in the midst of trials. Joy in the midst of trials. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been distressed by various trials. Did you see that? It's possible to rejoice and be distressed at the same time. It's possible to have joy and grief at the same time. Uh, some of us who have lost dear ones, who are in the Lord, we've experienced that. Uh, we have, we've experienced the grief that comes with losing someone in the Lord, but at the same time rejoicing that they are with their Lord and Savior. Rejoicing and grief. What are some things that he mentions about trials in these three verses? Verse 6, he says, They are for now. They are there while we are here on this side of the heaven. No trials, no grief on the other side. They are also fleeting. They are there for a little while. They are quick. Uh, Paul calls them momentary light afflictions. Momentary light afflictions. Notice also that they are if necessary. Uh, that is, they are not random acts or accidents. They are if necessary. And who is the one who decides if they are necessary in our life? Perhaps you are going through a trial even right now as some of us are. Who do you think decides if any trial is necessary? Well, go to chapter 4. Notice verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. Those who suffer according to the will of God. It is God who decides if a trial is necessary in our life or not. We don't have a full picture of what all God is doing behind the scenes as he works out the details of every trial that we go through. Ah, but it all, as even Steve was mentioning earlier, it's all a puzzle that is puzzled to us, but not to our great God. But you might say, I, I, I get it. I understand what my attitude should be when I'm in trials. But must I really go through trials? Is there no some, is there no some other way that God can accomplish his plans and purposes? And the answer is, is no. No, because if we remember our lessons from the study of Mark, it is this, that the path to glory is marked through suffering. And our Lord Jesus Christ is, is the supreme example of this, isn't he? Mark 10, 45, he did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Lord himself suffered. Are there other reasons why believers suffer and go through trials? Yes, Paul I mean, Peter highlights a few in this uh, section in verse 7, 8, and 9. First of all, he says, trials reveal the enduring quality of our faith. If you've been through a trial, you know this is true for you. Your faith has been stretched and your appreciation and love for our great God has increased uh, through that trial, hasn't it? Trials reveal the enduring quality of our faith. Here Peter gives us an example, verse 7. What a powerful example this is. He compares the trials of our faith to the purifying process that the metal gold is put through. Now when gold is initially extracted, some of you might know this process, it contains all sorts of impurities. And so it is put through fire by the goldsmith. And that process is called refining. The furnace is heated to such a degree uh, that gold becomes a thick liquid. And then what the goldsmith does is he adds generous quantity of soda ash and borax. And what that does is it separates gold from other impurities and metal traces that are there in that metal. You see, the refining process purifies the metal. See, when we are born again, our faith too has all sorts of impurities. Uh, and suffering acts like a refining process. It separates impurities from our faith. It cleans it up. It purifies it. Any of you are going through suffering right now? What a wonderful truth to remember. You see, in the process of purification also, the gold does not itself catch fire and burn. Peter tells us that our faith is more precious than gold because even gold will ultimately perish. Ah, but true faith, true faith will always endure. If it's important to put gold through the fire to purify it, how much more our faith? What trials do then is that they display the enduring quality of our faith. Notice, secondly, trials result in rewards of blessings. Trial results in rewards of blessings. When Jesus comes, when he is revealed, uh, there's far more happening than just the end of our suffering. You know, when our faith is tested, when we suffer, when we endure through suffering, when the authenticity of our faith is revealed, it results in our praise and our glory and our honor. Now, there is a difference in opinion here. Of many, many think that it is praise, glory, and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ or God, and that could be true. Or it could also be true that we are being praised. Uh, we are the one who receive glory and honor, and who gives that glory and honor? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Results in rewards of blessing. Thirdly, trials reveal the reason why our attitude must be one of joy. Our attitude during suffering must be one of joy. Why? Because of the present fellowship that we enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter writes in verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen him, which is true for us, we still love him. And though we do not see him now, which is also true for us, we believe in him. And we love him and we believe in him. And that is our current situation. Now Peter has had the unique privilege of seeing God incarnate, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, both before his resurrection and after his resurrection. He has been there, he has walked with him, he has talked with him, he has heard Jesus preach, and then he saw Jesus die, and then Jesus raised from the dead. Peter has seen that, but the audience to whom he is writing has not. And so he says, you know, you, you have not seen him, and yet you love him. You don't see him now, yet you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, if that is our current situation, that is at the moment, imagine what it would be when one day we would see him, when he will one day be revealed, when he'll come back to take his own. And that's what trials do. 
it reveals why our attitude must be one day one of joy and fourthly and finally trials fill us with confidence of present deliverance notice verse 9 obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls peter is looking at the here and now and the word obtaining is also could be translated as presently receiving for ourselves It's at the moment obtaining presently the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls john macarthur actually writes on this what kind of salvation is this he says salvation here refers to believers constant present deliverance from the penalty and power of sin from its guilt from its condemnation from its wrath from ignorance from distress from confusion from hopelessness and the dominion of sin trials fill us with confidence of our present deliverance even right now god is helping us through our present trials you see going through suffering fills us with confidence that deliverance from the consequences of sin is available even in the present what a great god we have a new identity that results in obedience to jesus christ a new beginning that gives us a living hope a new attitude which is joy in the midst of suffering highlights a genuine faith and fourthly and finally a new disclosure that spotlights our salvation a new disclosure that spotlights our salvation now i don't mean a new revelation i mean god's progressive revelation uh, of of our of the plan of redemption now not all the elements of our salvation or all the aspects of our salvation were highlighted in the old testament after all there is a difference between a real person and his or her shadow and the old testament in that sense points to the messiah who is revealed in the new testament and so peter is making the point here uh, as he writes about prophets and what they prophesy notice verse 10 he says as to this salvation the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of christ and the glories to follow he says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look how great is our salvation oh so great that peter invokes four different individuals in these three verses to tell us that it was the whole point of their ministry who are these four individuals and why are, why is peter mentioning well peter's point is this that the things that he's talking about in this letter specifically in these 12 verses it's not something that originated with him or the other apostles his understanding of salvation is not something that is that is drummed up by these apostles no he stands in a long line of faithful men that spoke on behalf of god the prophets there is an affirmation here that what he's writing about here was testified by the prophets that were sent by god in the past it's in line it's in the long line of god's people who have come before him and that's what in a sense all those who open god's word and teach do they don't bring their own ideas to the text no we just want to faithfully preach the text as it is as it is there and to that end he highlights these four groups of individuals uh, this uh, for whom this particular topic of salvation was, was of vital importance remember we're thinking about so great a salvation and what makes that great is the things that we've looked at so far but also that it is the focus of the study of these four groups now who are these groups well first of all there are the prophets he says it was the focus of their study the prophets who came before us they prophesied about the grace about the salvation that was to be revealed to us they wrote about it they talked about it that's what they prophesied about but they also made careful searches and inquiries they were curious about what the grand plan of god's salvation was can you imagine these prophets who god used to write the old testament sitting down writing things perhaps not fully understanding what they were writing but 
nevertheless writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I wonder how this will work out. I wonder when this man that we are writing about will come. I wonder why he is suffering. I wonder when his glories would be projected. You see, they understood the plan of God's salvation involved an anointed individual, a Messiah. They also understood to some extent that this individual would suffer. If you think of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. So they knew some things about this individual that would be coming. But the full scope of salvation was not revealed to them. It was a focus of their study, says Peter. But secondly, there's the apostles that are mentioned. Notice at the end of verse 12, he says, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you. The apostles, it was the subject of their preaching. You see, God used prophets that he authenticated in the Old Testament and he used the apostles or someone who was directly connected or influenced by an apostle to write the New Testament, Peter himself being one of them. As he thinks of the announcements and preaching, perhaps his mind went back to the first sermon that Peter preached. Remember in Acts 2, he was the first apostle to preach a sermon. And one of the things that he ends that sermon with is in verse 38 and 39. He says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now uh, that's what they did. It was the subject, the very subject of their preaching. They were not standing up to give their own ideas and tell about how great Jesus was merely as a human being. No, they were telling about what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. It was the very subject of their preaching. They did talk about the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the salvation that he accomplished for us was the subject of their preaching. Thirdly, he also mentions the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He says, Preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What was it for the Holy Spirit? It was the very theme of his inspiration. The entire scriptures were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter goes on to say, actually in 2 Peter verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Paul in his letter to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 3 verse 16, he says, All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's what it accomplishes. But why was it written? It was written to reveal to us God's plan for our redemption. And to that end, they were written to show us then the sufferings and the glories of Christ. So great a salvation. But there's another group of individuals, fourthly and finally, the angels. It was the very object of their probing. Our salvation is so great that beings created by God look with intense interest and desire to know more about what this is. Uh, they have a strong desire. The word there means an overpowering impulse to understand what God is accomplishing for human beings. Imagine these angels who are there, who are looking on at everything that is happening on the earth. Uh, they are used by God to announce the birth of His Son. Uh, they are used by God in the life of Jesus Christ when He was tempted by Satan. Uh, angels were used by God to proclaim that He was risen at the tomb. Uh, and then when He ascended, again angels were there. So in all of this, we see angels involved, highly involved. Someone has said there is a holy curiosity that they have to know all that salvation entails. And you and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are recipients of this salvation. You know, for the angels, uh, this is the kind of grace that they will never experience. But as they understand more of God, what God's plan of salvation is, they are in a position to glorify God even more. Because why are they created? They are ministering spirits, aren't they? That is the very reason for their existence. A new identity that results in obedience to Christ, a new beginning that gives us living hope, a new attitude that highlights genuine faith in a new 
disclosure that puts the spotlight on our salvation. So why did Peter write this letter? Going back to where we started. According to Peter then, he writes the epistle to help believers stand firm through their suffering. And how does he accomplish that in these first 12 verses? How can the recipients of this letter and even ourselves stand firm through our salvation? Well, by reminding ourselves of so great a salvation that we have. There's not a, as you observe these 12 verses, there's not a single command to do something. There's no imperative here. I don't remember who is going to teach next week, but the first imperative actually comes in verse 13. What Peter is doing is, by way of reminding us, he is magnifying what God has done through his Son for us. And when we remember so great a salvation, we are best equipped to go through difficult times, through sufferings, for the name of Jesus Christ. What are some lessons that we can learn from this? Well, I have three for us that we can gather. First of all, praise God, worship Him, adore Him for so great a salvation. I don't know when was the last time you invoked what God did for you in Christ Jesus. Just as Peter bursts out with praise and worship to our great God in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Perhaps the best response is throughout the day as we go, uh, through difficult and the good times of our life, just burst out in praising this great God for the salvation that He has accomplished in our life. Secondly, good time to revisit, revisit your testimony. You know, for those of us who listen to testimonies as a part of the membership process, we hear so many. And every time our hearts are thankful to our great God for what He is doing. I don't know if you are uh, a committed member here. If you are, then you probably have written your testimony at some point of time. Perhaps going back and, and seeing what God did in your life. Uh, seeing how you were before you came to know Him. Uh, seeing how your life was marked by sin and rebellion against God. And then seeing the circumstances in which God saved you. Uh, that trust that you place. I had the great privilege just last week of um, uh, an, a single adult who was a part of our group coming regularly. And I could see that he had lots of questions. And so he came, can I talk to you? Yeah. And then he said, you know, I, I, I am a believer since many years. Uh, I said, what, what, why do you say that? Well, I've been going to church, he said to me, since 2009. I said to him, let me share something with you. And so I opened a countryside tract with him. I walked through the gospel with him and I said to him at the end, there is a response needed from you. Have you ever responded to the gospel like this? And he said, well, I've never done that. And then I had to um, share the gospel once again to make sure I understand. And I said, uh, I shared the story of Luke 18 with him, you know, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I said, which character do you identify with? Oh, he said, I am the tax collector. Because God needs to have mercy on me. I want God to have mercy on me. And so he prayed, he trusted the Lord. I hope that was genuine as we see how he walks with the Lord. But great thing to revisit your testimony. Perhaps you have not read it for a long time. Uh, perhaps you have read it recently. Great thing to have it with you. And thirdly and finally, view your trials in light of First Peter chapter 1. In fact, the entire letter is written so that we would have the right framework, a godly framework, a God-honoring framework to stand firm through suffering. And we do that by understanding the great salvation God has accomplished on our behalf. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, our hearts are filled with thankfulness and gratitude to you. For those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior, what a Wonderful reminder of what you have done for us through your Son. Uh, help us never to get away from keeping it at the forefront of our eyes. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on our Lord Jesus Christ, the very author and perfecter of our faith, as we remind ourselves of everything that you have accomplished. 
and help us to live lives that are committed to you, to your word, so that we are best equipped to face the trials and sufferings of this life. But for those of us who do not know you, I pray that even today, they would place their trust, they would repent of their sins, call out to you in genuine trust in your Son, the only way for us to be right with him. As we go through this day, through this week, Lord, remind us of this great salvation. Help us to live Christ-exalting, God-honoring lives. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.